guest this week is Tom Kessler. He's a videographer who's filmed hundreds and hundreds of Baltimore shows. Um, do check out his YouTube channel, Thomas Kessler, She Will Rise Media. And um, I think many Baltimore bands have been kind of like blown away by the experience of you know, seeing this dude at the shows and then the entire show is like edited and put up online that same night. And that's how I first met him. And I thought it was pretty amazing. And to see him do his thing over these last couple years has been awesome. And um, we're going to split this one into two parts. We're not going to do the second part right away, but... um we just talked for too long, and I didn't want to edit my man too much. But let's get it going. The art this week, as always, is by Mike Riley. Check out MikeRileyComics.com. And once again, we're being hosted by Splice Today. Check them out at SpliceToday.com. Let's, let's go, go in. Most of my life, I've been like obsessed with movies. Just, yeah. just totally obsessed. And I, I'm now learning that I have some sort of brain malfunction that causes me to be selectively obsessive mm. as opposed to someone who matures and develops in a straight line so i've always been a late bloomer in all things on every conceivable level but i was obsessed with movies and i was obsessed with the movie scrooged with bill murray in november of 88 mm. so i had the bright idea to take a tape recorder into the theater and record audio of the movie and it worked out beautifully in fact unfortunately i think that tape may have gotten tossed, and it's really too bad, because what would make it special to listen to it now, uh, over 25 years on, listening to the audience reacting to it. Totally. You know what I mean? Because where are those people now? Right. It's almost, <laughs> right. Uh, and I remember, I remember specifically how some people laughed really, like there was one man in the theater, an older man, who laughed louder than the others, and I remember his laugh. And where is he now? He he's, he he may not be alive. Yeah, you know? that's 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 the magic of recording things. Totally. And then going back to them, be it days, weeks, months, years later, um, and it can it can be eye opening. It can be heartbreaking, you know. And yeah, it could be transporting. But it was the start of me becoming a compulsive recorder, uh, as I've described it to Mark Miller of Micro Kingdom and Oxes. Uh, I'm a data hoarder. Mm. You know, I mean, and it's true, and that's what the videos are now. I have this jumble of memory cards that go back to the beginning of when I started shooting videos of bands in Baltimore. There's just so much data. Yeah, you know, um, and, uh, <laughs> uh, and there's shows in there now. I've been doing it so long. There's shows in there I don't quite remember shooting, which is oh, totally. I can't believe we've gotten to that. Point. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm kind of, I can fuck my bio. <laughs> you know, I lived in uh, Carrollton Ridge, moved to Glen Burnie until college. Yeah. Went, at which point I went to UNBC. Yeah. Um, had three lost years in California. I'm going to save that for my tell-all autobiography later on. That, that'll have the more scandalous aspects of my history. Um, Was it scandalous? 
We don't have to talk about okay. it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Shut it down. I, no, it's fine. I was going I was going to joke about that. I mean, I kind of want to, in terms of the dirt on my life, I kind of want to keep this somewhat PG-13. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, and kind of keep it on topic more about why we're here. So, and then from, like, I moved back from California in 2000, and then I got an apartment in Charles Village in 2002. So, from 2002 to, what, 2009, uh, right, I lived in Charles Village. And at that time, I didn't, I started temping at Hopkins, got hired at Hopkins, and didn't have anything going on. So, I drank all the time. I was Mm. just, you know, and like so many people we know, I just drank all the time because I couldn't think of anything better to do. Yeah. I would sit in my apartment, get drunk, and watch movies. Or... I would go down to Fell's Point, go shopping at Soundgarden, and then take my wares, my CDs, over to Duclaw. Remember when Duclaw was in Fell's Point? The, no. The brewery? No. Duclaw is this, I don't even know if it's a Maryland thing or not. But basically, it is where the Bond Street Social Club is now. Oh, okay. You know where that is? Yeah. On, uh, on Thames. Is it Thames or Thames? I, I never know. <laughs> I think it's... The English thing is Thames, right? Yeah, like the but Thames we call River. it Thames. Yeah, right, right. Fell's Point. But I would—I had a disc man at the time, so I would take my 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 new compact discs over to the bar at Duclaw, and just drink beer after beer after beer and listen to CDs at the bar. And it was—I it was a—it was a weirdly contented way to be. And if you're going nowhere in your life, you may as well enjoy yourself. I could see that. But that was how I got to know Jimmy. Yeah. And I loved talking to Jimmy when I was buying shit from Soundgarden. Yeah. But it was funny because Jimmy's, uh, my first impression of Jimmy was as the great contrarian. Okay. Because <laughs> it would seem like there was nothing you could really fall in love with musically that Jimmy wouldn't shoot you down on in some mm. way. You know what I mean? And he was always kind of funny about it. I mean, Jimmy was never mean about saying that he thinks the album you like totally sucks. You know, but he was pretty blunt about it. <laughs> and I can't remember the only example I remember specifically is the PJ Harvey album Let England Shake okay and I was enamored with it when it first yeah. came out and I told Jimmy I said I love that new PJ Harvey album and Jimmy was like oh man I think that's the worst al- but I think that album's the worst thing ever <laughs> I don't even know why he thought that right 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 <laughs> and it was and I always just thought of Jimmy McMillan as the really friendly fun dude like guy at Soundgarden with yeah. whom I would never agree with whom I would never agree about music. Yeah. And it's funny to think about that now. So at some <laughs> point in like 2010, every time I would go in, he would start mentioning bands. He would mention Future Islands a lot, more than once. He would ask me, have you, have you seen Future Islands yet? Have you heard Future Islands yet? I'm like, no, I don't, I don't know from Future Islands. Yeah. Um, then he would always tell me, he's like, just, just trust me, you have to check out Future Islands. And... Um, I'm trying. I'm sort of mixing uh, two events up, but I think the first time he really got me to go to a show was Future Island. It was the Celebration Electric Tarot, Hello Paradise. Is that what it was called? Um, their album, on, their 12-inch on Friends Records. Yeah, that came out in 2010. I want to say. Yeah, I think it is Hello called Hello Paradise. Yeah, yeah. Electric Tarot, Hello Paradise. I think Electric Tarot was going to be a series of albums. Right, 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 right. You know, right. Yeah. gorgeous. Gorgeous artwork on the 12 inch. Yeah. And it was their record release show at the 2640 space, mm. St. John's Church in Charles Village. I went with a JVC standard definition digital video camera to this show. And it was the first time I'd ever seen Future Islands. Yeah. Arboretum opened too. Oh, yeah. You know, and it's funny because Arboretum is, a, <laughs> is an amazing band. 
But their stage presence is totally different than what Sam and what Katrina, Katrina brings when she yeah. performs at Celebration. It was kind of kind of interesting because um, Sam and Katrina are both very big stage presences. Right. To put it mildly. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I didn't know what to make of Future Islands at first. I saw them come out. When you first see Sam walk out and you, you don't know from Future Islands... And you don't know what they're about to really do. And you see him there. He had that was when he was in his white button-down shirt uh, phase, <laughs> and he he kind of looks like everybody's kind of brother from back home, you know, like yeah. back in the suburbs. And then you know when he started emoting and jumping up and down, you know, and it was funny. Even between songs, I would watch him kind kind of jump jump up and down a little bit and kind of kind of get his energy up. Yeah. It was really amazing, and this I was, and but I was watching it while taping it. I, I was holding my camera with one arm and keeping it steady against a pillar in this church. Mm. That's the thing about twenty six forty space. If any of the listeners don't know, it's a repurposed church, so it's almost like a hollowed out church inside, which yeah. makes it kind of a magical place. And um, that was a trend. Didn't begin there. I just because I'm a compulsive recorder, I thought to record the show. But one of my local heroes, Guy Werner, you know him? Yeah. He was truly recording the show. And there's a beautiful Guy Werner video or Guy Werner video clips from the show on YouTube and totally worth checking out. Mm. But they also did the thing. I think Katrina designed the the show. So they had balloons with cotton balls um, glued to the bottom. So they had these clouds hanging from oh, the ceiling. Yeah. Were you there? I saw, I saw like pictures. Of okay, it. yeah, it was really cool because at a certain point during celebration set, they lowered the balloons, the cloud balloons, and they turned into something the audience could tear apart and throw around. Oh, and um, there's balloons at the Future Islands 1000 show as well. It turned into a big balloon thing where Sam was actually dancing amidst giant beach ball sized, uh, medicine ball sized balloons <laughs> coming out. And having a grand old time. So future islands plus balloons is always a good thing. Yeah. But at that point, I wasn't really Jimmy's premier video guy yet. That sort of happened based on two things. Him pushing me towards the Micro Kingdom three three compositions of No Jazz release show Mm. at the wind-up space. And I really had no idea what Micro Kingdom was going to be. Yeah. It was Micro Kingdom and Violet Hour, which is... Uh, Beth Barden is in that band. Do you know her? She wrote, I, yeah. I know she did work at Soundgarden. I'm not sure if she still does. Yeah, so that, that, was, that was crazy. So I went there with a digital dictaphone, a Sony digital dictaphone. That's it. Not even a tape recorder, which is what I used to use. And when Micro Kingdom started playing, um, the first thing you notice about Micro Kingdom is the saxophone. Mm. <laughs> and um, I... Because I was an obsessive fan of, um, I'll just go ahead and admit it, I was a huge fan of Mike Patton. Mike Patton and Faith No More and Mr. Bungle in the 90s sort of taught me to embrace the weird. Mm. And I got so into everything Mike Patton related that when he started his label, Ipecac, I started following all the different things that he would release and every satellite project that he would be involved with. And through that, I discovered John Zorn. Mm. And do, do you know from John Zorn? Yeah, yeah. Um, and listening to these John Zorn avant-garde albums, I started to learn that there were records where a sax player would play music that would just be crazy squealing sax. I'd never heard anything quite like it. Oh, yeah. And it's not for everybody. 
<laughs> Sam, my girlfriend, um, she tolerates my, my appreciation for squealing saxophone. But it was interesting because Micro Kingdom with that show kicked it off with their song Gamut Runner, which is the only time I've ever heard them do it live. And it is the noisiest of the noise. Mm. And it was crazy because it was, it was insane. It was dense. It was noisy and it was shrill. And I, I, I scanned the crowd because they had a good crowd at the wind-up space for the show. And I'm like, wow, all these people are into this. Like, this sounds like it should be clearing the room. <laughs> oh yeah all these people are digging it yeah i i think that's like one of the coolest things actually about that kind of music is like something that's so weird and abstract but people are like cheering it on the way they cheer on like a slam dunk in like basketball or something or a guitar solo at, <laughs> at <a laughs> yeah show, yeah exactly know? exactly and it was funny because i remember subsequently jimmy told me like you know that guy from micro kingdom he's a doctor of music and he was referring referring to drummer and maestro will redman oh yeah but i thought he meant diker local treasure and sat reeds man john diker mm. you know i thought john diker was micro kingdom because he was such a dominant presence oh, okay and i'm like it was ex- to me. It was exciting that I could go to a place in Baltimore and see essentially a rock and roll show that sounded like noise jazz. Uh, it was it was super exciting to me. Yeah. It was kind of like having um, a mind expanding <laughs> experience. Yeah, I'm like I'm like I'm not sure if I like this Micro Kingdom thing, but I think I want more of it. I think yeah. I want to catch it again. So then I found out that they were playing Hamden Fest, and this was, I think, I want to say September 2011, I think that's correct. And it was, Diker, unfortunately, couldn't make that show, so it was just Will Redman and, again, Mark Miller, who um, other people knew from Oxes, but I did not, because right. this was the time where I was getting into Baltimore music. Right, right. So as far as I knew, Mark Miller was just that guy. I'm like, hey, I know that guy from Soundgarden. Right, right, he's a fixture at Soundgarden still, and um, and he would make these incredibly bizarre and amazing guitar sounds with Micro Kingdom, and he and Will fucking killed it there in Hamden Fest playing their outdoor set, and I was shooting it with my phone, and it ended with Will like uh, taking his cymbal off of his drum kit and kept playing it and ran off into the crowd and just disappeared. I found (laughs) out later that. I think it was the manager uh, or owner or bartender of Holy for Holies made a bet to him that this is a story that Jimmy that I remember hearing from Jimmy. So I'm probably getting everything wrong, and I'm probably even mis- <laughs> misrepresenting um, uh, Jimmy telling me it. But um, the idea was there was a bet that Will couldn't finish his outside set, couldn't bring his outside Micro Kingdom set into Holy for Holies. <laughs> and he did. Yeah. He just basically took off and ran into Holy for Holies, I think, still playing the cymbal. <laughs> and, and basically what he wanted, the bet was, if he managed to do that, he could drink for free for the rest of the day. Yes. Right. Oh. <laughs> the fact, and the thing is, Will, Will, has, Will Redman has an understanding of music theory that is beyond me. You know? I mean, his knowledge of overall music theory is as encyclopedic as yours of hip hop, you know? Yeah. And, um, but he, they have, he, they have this sense of crazy fun. Oh yeah. About them, yeah. You know, totally. it's, it's like, uh, it's a dense theoretical party band. You're totally right. I've never really 
been able to articulate that before. But what's interesting is, and this this kind this is kind of encapsulates what is so wonderful about the Baltimore music scene. Yeah, the Baltimore music and art scene is defined is defined by the freaks and geeks and misfit toys of you know DIY performers. Yeah, and yet it is our freaks and geeks who go on to become superstars. Yeah, you know totally. Um, and the fact, I mean, Micro Kingdom's one thing, like I said, they're basically an avant-garde party band, but isn't that also what Dan Deacon kind of does too? Yeah. You know, and it's, it's, it's so fun. So many people love Dan Deacon. He sells out shows for good reason. The energy in his shows is crazy and so unique to him. I don't know anyone else who does shows like Dan yeah. Deacon does. But what's interesting is at heart, his music is avant-garde, you know? Totally. It just sounds like silly party music because he breaks out the chipmunk vocals. Right, right, You know, and he has really, really funny geeky banter in between songs, and he makes everybody, he splits the crowd and has dance contests and all. Yeah. And, but he's selling out shows, selling avant-garde music as party music. Yeah. That's, (laughs) could that happen anywhere else other than Baltimore? Yeah. You know, and I, I don't know enough other local music scenes, so I couldn't say. But Baltimore seems like the place where Dan Deacon would happen. No, no, totally. And correct me if I'm wrong, hasn't he headlined Madison Square Garden at this point already? Man, I, I don't know, but I, <laughs> I could imagine. Dan Deacon has headlined Madison Square Garden. Future Islands is opening for Grace Jones at uh, the Hollywood Bowl. Damn, that's awesome. Right! <laughs> it's fantastic. And then then you have all these other artists that we know, the Wham City crew. So let me let me drag this all back on topic. Um, I barreled into shoot compulsively shooting videos in Baltimore, kind of the way I'm barreling into this completely scattershot interview. <laughs> um, I just ran in there and started doing it without a lot of forethought. Yeah. Everything I do is completely intuitive. And... I, is impulsive or compulsive the right word? <laughs> Both of those things. Yeah. <laughs> and um, the phone thing, shooting with the phone, I knew wasn't going to work because the Oxus show happened down at the G spot, right, right down the street from here. Yeah. The former G spot. It was, um, and it's funny because that was a big deal for Jimmy. It was October two thousand ten, I want to say. And Jimmy's like, uh, both Jimmy and Friends Records. Where Jimmy posting out his friends' records is like, I have a, we have a huge announcement. We have a huge announcement. And then it's like, Oxes are playing at the G spot. And I think it was like October 5th. And I'm like, awesome. What's Oxes? <laughs> you know, I had no idea. Um, and when I looked them up, <laughs> and when I looked them up and found the band photo, um, I'm, I'm sure Mark Miller appreciates this. I looked at the band photo of Oxes and I'm like, Oh, Oxus has got that guy from Micro Kingdom. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, because to me, Mark Miller's a rock star because he's in Micro Kingdom. You know? Yeah, and therefore, which is awesome. therefore, yeah. Oxus was cool because they had the guy from Micro Kingdom. Yeah, there's an audio, uh, Chris Freeland. So obviously, Oxus, of course, is Mark Miller, uh, Chris Freeland, and Nat Fowler, who has yeah. who has since relocated to uh, Germany, lovely Deutschland. Which makes Oxes a very difficult thing to happen now. Yeah. So it was really that one-off show, and um, I, I went in there with the intention of shooting it with my phone in black and white, as I do, and I shot five videos of that show. Badass fucking videos. 
Because as you know, as anyone who knows oxes knows, Mark and Nat stand on these black kind of monolith boxes on stage. Yeah. And there was a light uh, in the center of the stage, and Mark Miller was casting this amazing shadow on stage right. And I was framing him rocking out like a boss on his guitar with his shadow there. And, yeah. and I've subsequently done that with you as well. I try, Sometimes you'll be casting a badass shadow, and I'll try to frame <laughs> you with your fucking badass shadow. Um, and all five of those videos crashed because I was using a fucking Motorola-produced droid. From 2009. Mm. Uh, <laughs> um, are you shaking your head because uh, my, my girlfriend's here and she's shaking her head? I don't know if she's shaking her head because I'm, I'm throwing Motorola under the bus or because it was just, it just sucks that I had that phone. It was the most hateful cell phone ever. No, yeah. it wasn't because it allowed me to shoot Micro Kingdom for the first time at Hamden Fest. So, I mean, and if you look up now the very first Micro Kingdom video I ever shot, the one of Will and Mark rocking on Hamden Fest. It was shot on that phone. But for that, I will always thank that phone. That's what's up. <laughs> That's what that is indeed what's <laughs> up. But then I, it was then that I knew I had to get a real camera. Mm. So Sam, my girlfriend, has been very much an enabler and a sugar mama in terms of me being able to do this. Because we were given some money for Christmas 2011, I want to say. And you, she loaned me her half of it so that I could afford to buy the Warhorse camera that I use, which is the Canon Vixia HF M40. And I still, it's still the best camera that I have. Yeah, it's not. Well, that gets off, and there's 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 a there's a certain sense of negativity that I could get into with this interview because I'm I'm at a crossroads with the videos. I work so hard and I've been doing this for so long. I want the videos to get better. I want to, I want them somehow to become more professional. Okay. I want the sound to be right. I want the, um, I want the actual, the resolution of the video and the lighting to be impeccable, but it's so hard to do with the volume that I shoot, you know? Right. Right. But the worst part is I really don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> and it is absolutely true. I'm, I am, I'm not completely inept when it comes to te- to using computers and anything technical, but I don't have a natural touch for it. I need someone to sh- hold my hand the first time I do something technical, and that's how I learn it. Yeah. So I'm still looking for a mentor when it comes to shooting videos properly. Okay. But I also want a partner. I um, My workload is so insane now. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. It, it just sort of happened, too, at this point. Like, I mean, and I, there's no real rhyme or reason to the shows I pick to shoot. It's all intuitive. Yeah. Unless someone asks, you know. Right, like, right, right. I like it when I'm nudged towards a show. Yeah. You know. And I, and, I liked, and I hope that I can make it. I mean, sadly, like, you have a big show coming up, and I, I can't make it. Yeah, yeah. And that, that bums me out. Yeah. But you, What's you that? Don't, don't need to feel obligated to make Every single one. Well, yeah, but I guess that's the that's the OCD aspect. Mm. There, it's there's I I like to say yeah it's discipline, but really it's OCD. Mm. You know, um, so yeah, somewhere along a long enough timeline, I want to change up the game of what I'm doing. Yeah, I because I know that actual legit videographers can look at what I'm doing and it's kind of a joke. You know, <laughs> in what sense? What I do is very slapdash. I have a very naive idea of what what is acceptably good in a video. You know what I mean? 
because there's only so much I can do when I run in and I'm dealing with a lighting situation, which is in clubs, especially is usually not ideal. Yeah. You know, and, um, I have, I now, after three years, I finally bought an led light, but not every band wants to have an extra light thrown on. Them. Yeah. Yeah. And some bands, especially my, my beloved micro kingdom, <laughs> prefer playing in the dark. Which yeah. makes it rough because you need light to shoot, <laughs> to shoot <laughs> video or photography of any kind. Totally. Um, so at some point, I feel like I work harder but not smarter. Mm. You know, um, so I I don't know how that's going to change, and I, I desperately <laughs> want it to change. I feel like anything that's really awesome that we do takes too. It takes too much effort to just do it again and again and again and again for and, and not have anything happen. You, you know what I mean? What do you mean like, in terms of having something happen? You mean it, you mean the product breaking out and becoming yeah. more than just a collection of our hobby? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, I don't know. I think it's real easy to get stuck in a rut where it's like, okay, this is like not exactly a job, but it's kind of just like a really time-consuming hobby. And money-consuming. Yeah, yeah. And and (laughs) so often I'm talking to people that are like, it's just like we just want something to happen. Be it it like someone's like, oh, this is cool and can like help fund it. Or just you have some kind of like personal breakthrough or artistic breakthrough where it's like, okay, I like this more than I did yesterday. Like it kind of sounds like you're at a point where it's like you're thinking about the next 100 shows or whatever, and you're like, you yeah. want it to be different <laughs> somehow. It's at some point. I want there, yeah. not not an end game, because I, I sort of don't want it to end. Uh, my camera, oh man, <laughs> this is where we get to the heavier portion. Uh, my camera actually broke, um, I want to say it was two winters ago. And it happened at the same time that my mother went into the hospital for open heart surgery. Oh, so... Just imagine those two things on top of one another. Because I start, I realized once the camera was broken, that it was my crutch. You know what I mean? To kind of get through week to week and month to month. Because I grind away as an administrator at Johns Hopkins. You know what yeah. I mean? It's kind of a, I do okay. You know, I, I, I survive and I get paid and I have a life. You know, yeah. now that I have, yeah, I live with my girlfriend Sam yeah. and her son and her many, many animals. <laughs> Uh, I'm not an animal person. I never knew I was. Um, <laughs> you know, I have a domestic life, which is, yeah. which is wonderful. But um, I didn't realize that the videos give me purpose. And, and, t- and I didn't realize it until the camera was broken. Yeah. So I spent half of the camera's worth to send it out to California to get repaired. So I had this kind of weird fidgety month where I couldn't shoot anything because I had no, no camera. Mm. And my mother was in the hospital for open-heart surgery because essentially... My mother's had cardiovascular myopathy since 1980. She got seriously ill in 1980, and she wasn't supposed to live past 1985. Wow. Now, if you think about it, we're in 2015. Her uh, life-threatening illness is now 35 years old. Yeah. She's been sick longer than you've been alive. Yeah. You know, but finally it got to the point where her doctors are like, you, you need to get an LVAD pump. So, ideally, they wanted to get her, give her a heart transplant. I'm like, a heart transplant? That is fucking heavy. But what I didn't realize is that actually now we have the, you know, we have the technology to make you better, faster, stronger. Mm. Getting a heart transplant now is not as big a deal as it used to be. Yeah. It's crazy. We're at this point now where 
a doctor can be fairly matter of fact about the fact that, well, no, it's no problem. We will transplant your heart and you will be fine. Right, right. That was, was kind of <laughs> how my mom's amazing heart surgeon was talking to her. You yeah. Know? But they got a heart sent up from Florida. Like, they only have a two-hour window to get that heart in her. Right. So there was this, there was this nerve-wracking night where I was at... Um, as of the hospital when we were waiting and they were, they were putting her under and they were examining the heart and they almost did it. And at the last second, you're like, no, <laughs> no, fuck this heart. And, uh, what they essentially said was, um, they said, yeah, they said the people in Florida painted a rosier picture of this heart <laughs> than the reality ends up being. That's great. That gives you a peek into this whole, can you imagine this whole kind of, I don't know if it's like this capitalist organ uh <laughs> you know organ industry that's going on right where some people are like used heart sales people and they're kind of trying to sell you a lemon <laughs> of a heart and you gotta <laughs> you have to hope that your heart surgeon is on the ball enough to be like yeah i'm not gonna buy this heart sorry. yeah <laughs> sorry man you gotta go with the pump that's but crazy my mom's doing my camera's fixed and my mom's doing quite well even oh. though she has to wear a battery pack all the time and a, yeah. a big ass battery pack, like a purse on her side, and you know one day they're going to be smaller than iPods, <laughs> but now <Yeah. laughs> now they're like nineteen eighties uh, <laughs> cell phones or, or remote controls. Yeah, they're they're huge. They're fucking huge. So and it's and I will say that my camera hobby has gone hand in hand with heavy things going on in my life. Yeah. Um. The, you know the story that's coming next. I was debating whether or not to tell it, and I think I'm just going to go ahead and tell it. Um, so when I was shooting videos with the phone, I was just kind of, I was gradually doing it. It wasn't a serious full-time thing. And around that same time, this guy I met in college, my best friend in the world at that time, Steve Teller, a guy who in college, he taught me, I didn't realize how socially retarded I was until college. And he is the dude who taught me to lighten up. And not take yourself so seriously and mm -hmm. not take the world so seriously. And he, he was one of my many movie-watching buddies through the 90s and all that. And even though we became separated, he became um, a very successful digital animator in, uh, in Cal Southern California. He would always kind of hang with me like an instant messenger and all through the 2000s. But um, I guess it was in 2011 that he found that he had leukemia. Mm. And I, I didn't even know how to process that at first, you know. But he, you know... I don't know if you are you aware of a Timothy Leary book called Designs on Dying. Mm -mm. Timothy Leary wrote a book as he was dying of cancer to kind of like give you his kind of psychedelic, you know, kind of almost Zen existential approach. To yeah. Dying, you know, and that was kind of how Steve approached having this thing. It, mm. You know, he would even when he was in the hospital, he would post pictures of himself giving a big thumbs up. And when he would get blood infusions, he would he would, you know, I would ask him, like, you know, how do you feel? And he's like, I feel powerful. He's like. He's like, something about getting a blood infusion makes you feel super powerful, you know? Yeah. And he was doing quite well, even though he had a badass. He had acute lymphomatic leukemia. And uh, I actually am an admin for oncology at Johns Hopkins. So I'd ask, him, ask a nurse. I'm like, my man has, has ALL. How? She's like, oh, oh, dude, that's bad. I'm like, yeah, I get that. I get that it's bad. <laughs> yeah. So, and... Basically, things went south for him real quick because he got a blood clot in his leg at one point and then went into the hospital and went into septic shock. And it just took out, like, his kidneys and one of his lungs. It was just, it was, it was a matter of time at that point. And it was really, but was, there were so many unfortunate things going on there. But for me, 
my drinking was worse than ever. And I, I truly regret that I spent the last two weeks of my man's life drunk, Mm. you know, and I did get to see him again. Like he, he had to come out to DC to do something for, um, do basically he was on a business trip and he he met Sam my girlfriend which is great because in a lot of ways Sam is the female version of my man you know <laughs> it's in so many ways and that yeah. that's a whole other conversation um and that's 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 great um but he believed in me and he believed he believed in me he believed in me in my life when he shouldn't have and he loved my writing I wrote a lot of short stories back when I was in high school and he loved my writing when we were in college yeah and he always told me he couldn't wait for me to write something else. Yeah. And for the rest of his life, I didn't write anything. And even in the last weeks of his life, I couldn't even write my man a letter. I didn't, I just wanted to write him something and I didn't do it. And it's one of those things that you just, there's, 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 there's no cure for that regret. You can't turn back time. You can't turn it back. But two hours before the future islands at Trader's music beat show at the auto bar, I found out that he had passed away. So, uh, to say that I was in a strange headspace during that show uh, is to put it mildly, you know. Yeah. But it was our first time, Sam and mine, uh, seeing Ed Schrader's music beat. Yeah. And I just went ahead and shot some videos of Ed and Devlin with my phone. Kind of just, just not present, you know. But fortunately, Sam was. And afterwards, Sam was like, those guys were really cool. <laughs> She's like, I really like Ed Schrader's music beat. And I'm like... Yeah, yeah, they were they were pretty interesting, weren't they? Right. And um, the reason I tell you this story is this guy, this this man, this friend of mine, helped bring me out of my shell in college. And I think when he died, I think I crawled back into the shell. I couldn't help it, you know. And I think at that point, I sort of started hiding behind the camera. I so I disappeared behind the camera. Because it was actually in that month, I think, that I finally got the Canon that I shoot with now. Uh-huh. And, um, no, it was the month after. But I went to see Micro King, it was Micro Kingdom and Room Runner at Golden West. And I remember being really philosophical that night. It was, it was during the, it was in December, because I think it was the winter solstice that night. Will Redman was joking about the winter solstice. <laughs> and I was watching Will Banter. He was in rare fucking form that night. And... I was also thinking about my friend, and I was thinking that he was gone, but this cool thing was happening. And mortality is a very is is an obsession of mine, you know. Yeah. Which also comes into why I'm obsessed with recording things, you mm. know, something to live on. Yeah. You know, but I remember looking at him, looking at Will, and thinking, "This amazing, cool thing is happening after the end of my man's life." And it's the thing we always think about with death. Like even one of the reasons that I don't want to die is I hate the idea that after you die, cool shit's going to keep happening that you're going to miss. Mm. And I was, I was looking at Micro Kingdom and Will, Will being just his, a drunken comedic genius that night, <laughs> to, yeah. my, to my mind. Yeah. And thinking, this is a cool, cool ass. I don't even think Steve would have liked Micro Kingdom, but this cool-ass thing was happening beyond the end of his life. Yeah. So somehow, that night with Micro Kingdom at Golden West was the night that my obsessive compulsive recording of Baltimore music truly began and took shape. Mm. It began. I think I, I think I need, I'm glad it was there because I think the period after Steve's death would have been much darker if I didn't have these video, these concerts and these video recordings to obsess upon. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so that's, um, I know there's a connection there and I've told this story before. I always feel weird telling this story. I don't know why. I, I know. No, I think it's very <laughs> illuminating. <laughs> it yeah. is illuminating. It's yeah. revealing as shit. So, um, another thing early on, um, I was observing another, I was very self-conscious about what I was doing, shooting video illicitly. Cause I would just, it's kind of a presumptuous thing to roll into someone else's show and record their music and performance without their permission. Right. And then just go and put it up for the world to see. Um, and it was a show I will not name. <laughs> and there was another video man there who I will not name. Um, and I was kind of watching how he was going about it. And he was doing something. He was... I want to word this as diplomatically as possible. Because I would hate to be the guy listening to a podcast and hearing someone like allude to someone who did something they didn't agree with. And be like... yeah. Dude, is he talking about me? Yeah. That's not any of my heroes. My heroes are Joe Giordano, Joshua yes. Emmett, who is also Josh Nielsen, yes. and uh, Guy Werner. Tight. <laughs> but this guy was just kind of, I, he was he was trying to interact with the artist and he was getting he's getting up real close to the stage and shooting from ultra low angles, super close yeah. up, which I was even looking at thinking, like, I can't imagine that's gonna look good. Because I'm the king of the uh, the wide shot. Yeah. I believe or, or, no. That, that that was a stupid thing to say. The wide shot, <laughs> the wide shot is king, is what I meant to say. I always start with the wide shot, and then you zoom when you want to get intimate. Yeah, you know. Um, and and I felt like perhaps he was maybe came maybe he was a little bit annoying to the artists who were performing. Yeah, and I'm like, I don't want to be that guy. You know, I want right. to be a ghost. At yeah, these shows. So and that's that also explains why, like at the end of the night. Like, so I'll just pack up my camera, my monopod, and go without a word. Um, that's why it's surreal to be sitting here and talking about this. I never would have thought that anyone would want to know from the guy who shows up in bootleg shows. And I've heard stories from other people in other music scenes. But I sometimes fear that bootleg guy. And it's always guys, isn't it? There's not many bootleg women out there. <laughs> you notice that? Is the loser in the room. And I, I, I worry about that. Wait, what do you mean? That the person who, the, the guy who will go in and compulsively record shows is perhaps somewhat maybe socially retarded. Or maybe, uh, maybe, some, maybe he's got something, he, maybe he's the guy who doesn't have much of a life, you know. And he doesn't really create anything of his own. So this shooting videos of other people is the thing that he has and I'm not talking I, and now I'm not talking about anyone you know or have ever right. seen I'm talking about these stories I've heard of other people um, you know like at, at work there's a, there's a middle aged woman who performs in a rock band that she's been in for decades and she's like oh you're, you're like this guy we know he always comes out and shoots videos and his videos are terrible and they even have like this kind of almost somewhat derogatory nickname for him mm. and I'm like do people see me as that guy? I mean, and this goes back to early on before I knew that the artists were kind of digging the videos. Right, right. You know, I'm like, I'm like, I, I almost just, when people would kind of look at me, because I didn't want to be seen, and yet here I am with a camera on a fucking pole, so you can't not see me in the room. Yeah. When people would look at me, I'm like, oh, fuck, they're, they're looking at me and thinking, oh, that guy's a fucking, <laughs> you know? It's, it's a, and it's a legit concern, because sometimes you got to stop and think. I'm like, is what I'm doing functional or normal or okay? You know? For me, like, you know how 
I'm all into this world of like these old school hip hop tapes and stuff. I do. Like, like the people that that actually like took the time to do all that stuff. I I don't know. They're kind of like rock stars to me. You, you, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like like thinking back to the like when rap was like this like incredibly small obscure thing happening in these like rec centers and stuff like like there's this one dude like tape master that has recorded so right. many of the shows. that's why it exists yeah. yeah and it's like those recordings i don't know that that shit makes me be like for one it's like how cool is that guy that he like had the foresight to just go everywhere that that stuff was happening and document it all i, I don't know so it's like for one I think that shit is cool. And then secondly, it's like the my other question is why isn't there like a thousand times more? You know? Like right. Like I know I know it wasn't as easy back then to film anything, but like you, you when you say then you're talking about the late seventies, yeah, eighties, aren't you? Did, yeah, you couldn't film yeah. but you had tape recorders and that was pretty badass. I mean that was actually I think you know, um I, I remember when I was a momentarily obsessed with Fleetwood Mac recently. I was reading that Nick Fleetwood, um, Nick Fleetwood's theory about why Tusk didn't sell as well as rumors was that some radio station played Tusk in its entirety on the radio and everyone got out their cassettes and recorded it. Therefore, everyone had a bootleg recording of it. Therefore, no one went to buy it. Yeah, yeah. And it's, um, what, what year was Tusk? Is Tusk 79? I'm not sure. Sorry. <laughs> Fleetwood Mac, that's totally out of left field. No. But I think in the... I'd be willing to bet that the 70s were sort of like the dawn of people learning that you could bootleg with tape recorders. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I would love someone who knows more about that to... <laughs> to, to <weigh laughs> in. That person's not here right now. Um, there's a couple other things I want to sort of get into. Um, how are we doing for time? We're, we got all the time. All the time in yeah. the world. Um, cause I realized there's, there's a whole world, uh, that we haven't gotten into yet. Um, so I follow Jimmy McMillan leads me to future Island celebration, micro kingdom friends records, friends yeah. records. <laughs> what a thing he's doing there. You know, it's funny to I me mean, and it really is. It really is the most motley collection of <laughs> DIY <laughs> artists, you know? Yeah. It's, it's kind of amazing. Um, what Jimmy has done there. And if anyone's listening to this and they haven't listened to the Jane McMillan interview, go back and listen to it. <laughs> yeah. Cause he is the motherfucking man. He is the dude of Baltimore, you know? And that's all I'll say about that. But, um, so because I'm obsessed with Will Redmond now, Will Redmond posts on Facebook that I'm going to go, I'm doing a hip hop show tonight. I'm going to actually play a hip hop beat. So come out and check it out. And this is what leads me to my first experience with the Baltimore Boom Bap Society. Yeah. You know from the Baltimore Boom Bap mm -hmm. Society? I've never seen you there, and I want to see you there. <laughs> and I'm going, to keep, I'm going to keep bombarding you with invites. And I just don't want to be forced to freestyle. You won't have to. MCs <laughs> come out all the time and don't, do, don't get up there. Cool, cool. No one's going to force you to do anything. <laughs> okay. So Baltimore Boom Bap Society is the brainchild of Eric Spangler and Kevin Gift. Kevin Gift um, records and performs under the name Wendell Patrick. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I, do you, do you know Kevin? Yeah. You do? Mm -hmm. Okay. Have you ever thought about getting him in here? Yeah, I really should. <laughs> yeah, you really yeah. should. In fact, you get him and Eric in here at the same time, maybe for a Baltimore Boom Bap thing. Yeah. Um, so what Baltimore Boom Bap Society was, was, is this wind up space, um, uh, monthly thing that they do, monthly event. And 
it basically they'll get disparate. It's the, it's Eric Eric and Kevin as Wendell Patrick on the ones and twos. Yeah. And then they'll get live musicians from either the rock or local jazz scene. And that night it was Will Redmond on drums and Cappy Kramer on um, vibraphones. And then they had beatboxers. I think it was Max Beats. I, oh, yeah. I want to say Show to K, but I'm not sure if Show to K was there yet or not. Oh, okay. And then the primary MC of the night was this man known as Easy Jackson. Yeah. <laughs> and I had already seen Easy Jackson um, fronting Soul Cannon at Scapescape. But this is the first time kind of seeing Easy Jackson get up and freestyle. And this, that night was really magical. Uh, even more so than that first Micro Kingdom show I went to. I had the sense of like, this is what's really happening in Baltimore right now. I mm. feel like I'm seeing the birth of something amazing. Kind of like, if you ever, have, have you ever read up on the Bristol scene in the UK um, about how uh, when Massive Attack came up as the Wild Bunch, you know, and um, you had Tricky, Massive Attack. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, who, who else came up out of Bristol? I know Porter's head was from Bristol. Oh, okay. But can you imagine seeing those guys coming up when yeah. they were just doing tiny-ass club shows maybe in the late 80s and early 90s? Um, I always... Like I always fantasize about what it would be like to go out to a small Bristol club and check out what Robert Del Naja or Daddy G was throwing down that night back when they were young. Yeah. You know, not saying they're not young now, but right, right. <laughs> you know, they still got some youth in them. But um I had the sense and I, I hope I hope that um I hope that Kevin and Eric don't think this is reductive of what they're doing, but I said I feel like I'm seeing the the early seeds of Baltimore's version of a massive attack Bristol scene type of thing coming up. Yeah. Because these, you know, these jazz guys and rock guys making this basically, everybody's improvising. Yeah. As they say, it's all, it's, it's, um, they're, they're following, um, everyone's following everyone else's lead. And then the MCs jump up and and freestyle. Um, it was something I'd never seen before, but what was beautiful was it was like a bridge. I, um, I haven't read it yet, but today, Jana Hunter, today was posted in Pitchfork, Pitchfork, Jana Hunter of Lower Dens wrote an essay about white privilege in the Baltimore music scene. Mm. Did you see that? Yes. I, I didn't read it, but I saw that it exists. So I don't want to comment on that because I haven't read it yet. Yeah. But it's interesting because it's sort I don't, I didn't, even before I went to Baltimore Boom Bap Society for the first time, I didn't want to think of the Baltimore music scene as being segregated. Cause I don't really, I mean, it is and it isn't right. You know, but when I went to Baltimore boom bap, it was, it was like this, I, I saw Baltimore as the melting pot. Yeah. You know? And you know, when you can have the dude from micro kingdom, who is also the professor of Towson laying down some drum beats and you have guys like Max beats and show to beatboxing and easy freestyling. Um, and it was good. Yeah. The music was good and it was magical. Um, it was kind of like it, it makes me appreciate how much like jazz hip hop is. Mm. You know what I mean? Um, like, uh, kind of lost that thought. <laughs> well, what in the Im- improvisation aspect? Well, I, I, I would, you know, jazz is jazz and hip hop are both things I've only recently started to get into okay and part of the reason is because i've started to fall in love with the music being made by these Baltimore music- musicians musicians be they jazz avant-garde jazz hip-hop alternative yeah. hip-hop 
And it's it's been a gateway drug for me to discover these these worlds of music. I'm discovering. I'm I'm backtracking, discovering old hip hop through you. Uh, you know, oh, all people. Cool. Yeah. And I think the fact that you can you can bring you can bring some of us who were never into hip hop in our youth to hip hop now, I think speaks really well of your vision. You oh, know, as a uh, as as an enthusiast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of uh, of old school hip hop. Um, but you know, Baltimore Boom Bap Society was not really it's something that was completely not affiliated with Friends Records. It became this whole new world of music that yeah. I started obsessively following. So through Baltimore Boom Bap Society, I discovered the talents already mentioned: Easy Jackson, Max Beach, Shodake, Kane Mayfield, yeah. um, Black Root, oh, uh, yeah, Chuck, um, Chuck the Maddox. Name dropping like crazy here. <laughs> um, anyone else I'm forgetting? I'm terribly sorry. Femi, you all, you all rock. Is he, Femi the yeah. dry fish, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and the whole brown fish thing. Well, it's funny. It's funny you mentioned that because actually one other MC hopped up on stage that night for a very very quick cameo. And it was Derek Jones mm. who performed as Ooh and Yo Slick. Yeah. Um, basically, he just ran up there, I think, did a few lyrics from his Save a Dope Boy song and, and kind of ran back into the crowd, you know. Yeah. But the following week was the one-year anniversary, the following month, I should say, was the one-year anniversary of Baltimore Boom Bap Society. And the, um, the primary MCs that night were Kane Mayfield, Black Root, uh, Easy was there, but also Jay Pope. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, um, ooh, um, mm. jumped up and did a couple of, a couple of sets yeah and it was funny because and i really liked ooh, and and i describe i would describe him to sam my girlfriend i would say ooh, yeah this really cool old guy jumped up there i would describe <laughs> i described uh, derek as the old guy <laughs> and i have subsequently learned that um, derek uh was in fact our age <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of that's kind of surreal when the person jumps up on your stage like who's that older guy oh he's the, he's he's my age yeah shit i do that i do that all the time i like <laughs> yeah i'll be like i'll see someone performing and i'll be like i guess they're probably like early 30s or something i'll be like wonder what it's like to be like in your like 30s and doing it and i'm like oh yeah oh <laughs> yeah it feels more or less the same as late 20s just a little bit further along and you just wait till you're 39 my man <laughs> let's go it won't be long um and that's 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 it gets me into the whole mortality thing i'm like oh man the gap between uh decades is just not long anymore now yeah. for adults but it's it. you know speaking of mortality um as we know, Derek Jones uh, subsequently passed away. Yeah. And but yet we have this record of him performing um, at Baltimore Boom Bap Society. Yeah. Which, you know, um, Kevin and Eric came up with that as an ephemeral experience by design. You know, we're going to improvise. This is a one-time only thing. It'll never happen again. But because I show up and record it, there is a record of yeah. it. Yeah. And, you know... I'm weird with the filters. <laughs> my, I, I'm totally random with choosing my filters. It's always, it's always intuitive. Oh, this might be black and white. Oh, it's dark in here, so I'm gonna use sepia because sepia seems like it maximizes the light. Although the real professionals tell me that's just bullshit, and everything I do is bullshit. <laughs> it's true. That's a whole story I could tell. <laughs> I recently met with an actual professional videographer to find out what I'm doing wrong, and the answer is everything. <laughs> like, like. When you say that, because you said that to me last week, like, like what? <laughs> I, I, it's a weird, it's a weird thing because would you want 
I don't know. You you don't want it to look like a wedding video or something. You know, like you have your own style, right? Like I do have my own style, but um, at some point, I want to find a balance between what is acceptably professional and what looks cool to me. Yeah. So the best advice, I think probably was some of the best advice that I was given was uh, I trapped, <laughs> I cornered Ben O'Brien at um, Pasta the Gathering. You know, Pasta the Gathering yeah. is Ed Trader and Kevin Sherry's uh, <laughs> pop-up pasta thing. And um, there was one day where I was there alone, and I got there like as soon as they opened, and Ben got there as soon as they opened. And I got to talking to Ben, and... Um, he was very polite, you know, as he can be. Um, but, you know, he, he was also very polite when I talked about how I chose, shoot, uh, how I use the filters in camera when I'm shooting. Yeah. And he's like, well, yeah, he goes, well, what I do is I shoot flat, you know, and then every all the filtering on you do in post. Right. You do later when you have your software editing, you know, uh, program, which is what any... <laughs> any videographer worth their salt will do. You shoot f- as flat as possible, and then you play later. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, there's no real flat option on my camera that looks good or works. You know. And fortunately, to me, the filters can look cool. But what I learned from the from the professional was that no professional is ever going to look at your bullshit in camera camcorder um, filter and think that looks um, acceptable. So, and that that break that breaks my heart a little bit, just because I now I have. Over 3,000 videos, hours and hours and hundreds of hours of videos that I think that passed a certain level of, um, of video sophistication, like viewers who actually are sophisticated when it comes to the, the technology of shooting video or film, they're just going to shut, shut, tune me out. They're like, okay. This is bullshit. This video is absolute bullshit. This guy is using his um, this guy is using his cheesy um, camcorder filter, and then he's tweaking it with cheesy free YouTube tools, which is what I do. Because I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to. I don't mean to be a contrarian. Please do. But I, I just feel like, all right. You know how we were saying, like I was saying earlier, like say at the beginning of hip hop, it's like why wasn't there more. Why? Why didn't anyone come out there with the camera? Yeah. You know, whatever. But like, think about every video that's on YouTube. From you know, you can be like, I want to see a video of Jesus Lizard or something <laughs> in the in the nineties or whatever. Yeah. And like, if there's one video that's what you searched for, it's like. It's easy to just be like, oh, yeah, it's there. But, like, someone had to do everything you had to do to film it. Correct. And then they had to save it, and then they had to, like, put it up now. You you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and like, I sort of feel like that's the most important thing is, like, like, I just, I think about how, how many shows I've done where someone has a camera Either a video camera or just a camera, and it is are taking pictures or filming or something, and they'll even like get my address and you know back before it was all internet or my email or whatever, and they'll be like, "Yeah, we'll send it right out to you," and I never see it. Yeah, and they just never dumped it on their computer or anything. And it's like, I think in some ways it's like more important to just do it and and like. Like, 
do the entire process and have it be done. Like it's like you did it. You know what I mean? And like I agree with that. It's like know? the guy. <laughs> this is maybe a stupid way to put it, but it's like as much as the feedback is helpful, like the guy is not at the Metro Gallery filming the next show. You know what I mean? No, that's true. And, like, maybe because it would take too long, partially. Like, not only does he not want to stand there and do it, but (laughs) if he has to, like, film it flat and then, like, edit this, like, Mm -hmm. hour-long piece of footage later, it's for free. It's it's probably not going to happen. You know what I'm saying? And I feel like if a, you know, look, there's going to be, I'm going to try and put a positive spin on this. Okay. Because I think, you know... We all want to improve our game as we go yes. along, and I don't. And I don't want anyone to ever think that I think that the videos I'm shooting now are as good as they could possibly be because I don't believe that. Okay, I believe we. I believe they could be better, and I could still keep doing what I'm doing, but do it better. All right, we're gonna cut it off right there, and do part two a little later on. See you next week.